I want to add my own greeting to you. It's good to see you this morning. Um, If you're new here, I I sure hope you'll stick around during coffee and bagel um, time after the service and find me or I'll try to find you. I want to meet you. A few weeks ago, we began a series of sermons that are going to continue for the next several months through the Gospel of John. And this morning, we've arrived at the end of chapter 1. If you have a Bible, I encourage you to find that. John chapter 1, the passage that I just read. John chapter 1, verses 35 through 51. This passage of Scripture, it covers two scenes, two encounters, two different groups of people. It deals with a total of seven characters. There's John the baptizer, there's Jesus and Andrew, and there's Peter and Philip and Nathaniel, and then there's this shadowy figure that flits across the pages of John's gospel that we don't know who he is until we get to the end and we discover it's the beloved disciple. Now, what I want us to do is to kind of open up this passage. I want us to notice a few small, peculiar details. And I want to start with these four odd comments and use them as a way of opening up the theme of this section of Scripture. Look at verse 39. He said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day. For it was about the tenth hour. We think that means four o'clock. It depends if they're counting by Roman time or Jewish time. When they count the start of the day, we think that they're counting here in such a way that this is four o'clock. But the issue is, it's a weird statement. Why, in the midst of narrating all of this, does he pull a Kevin Spacey or Shakespeare and turn and look at the audience? What is it called? Breaking the what? The fourth wall and address his reader. It was the fourth hour, the four o'clock. It's odd. That's the first odd detail. The second Odd detail is in verse 38. He turned and he saw them following and he said, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi. And then he does it again, right? He turns and faces the reader, the audience, and says, this means teacher. Because Rabbi was an Aramaic or Hebrew word and he was writing in Greek. And his readers were Greek speakers and they didn't know Hebrew or Aramaic. So it's odd, not only that he translates but that when he's talking in Greek, he slips back to the language of the original scene for that term. You see what I mean? It stands out on both levels. It stands out, why is he speaking in English, telling us, you know, this is sort of like Gil, who grew up in Uruguay, grew up speaking Spanish. If he was telling you a story about his childhood in English, but in the middle of it, he broke into Spanish and then translated that back into English for you. Why, why did he break into Spanish for that? That's, that's the second odd detail we're going to try 
to use as a way of coming into this passage. The third one is in verse 41. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we've found, and here he breaks into the original language the scene occurred in, Aramaic or Hebrew, the Messiah, which means, goes back into Greek, the Christ. Now look at verse 42. So you are Simon, the son of John, Jesus said. You will be called Cephas. Here he does it again. So all three of these times, verse 38, verse 41, verse 42, there's a key term that he doesn't translate. He gives it in its original language and then translates for his readers. Now, those three things, those asides, translating, and then the first one I mentioned, the aside naming time. What is this? What is this all about? Why is he doing this? Three reasons, I think, and those of you who like balanced Baptist sermons, here you go. Reason number one, this is the vivid recollection of an eyewitness. These things, this is the way somebody who's an eyewitness tells a story sometimes. Now, for the last several hundred years, it's been chic in academic circles to suspect that the Gospels hide the real Jesus. That the Gospels are the evolution, the growth, the mythic growth of special interest groups who have co-opted this charismatic teaching figure or this miracle worker and that over the decades that followed his life, they created a mythical story. They began to tell his life in a way that supported their vested interest. For the last 200 years, the quest for the historical Jesus has accepted this premise. It's not right. There's plenty of evidence in the Gospels that you're not dealing with the stories that were told to people, who told them to people, who told them to people, who told them to people. But we're dealing with actual eyewitness testimony. And of the four Gospels, John's Gospel was written by an eyewitness. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time interacting with this issue. I've done it in the past. It's very important. If you want to talk more about how can we have confidence that we're actually dealing with trustworthy, credible testimony of eyewitnesses, please track me down during coffee and bagel hour. We can set a time to get together and, and really have that real discussion, which is so important. What I want to do now is beg your pardon to just name it. 
and to just use these few little details to make this very important point. You can trust these accounts. That it, it, you don't have to believe them. I'm just saying to you, you can trust that they're actually eyewitness testimony. Now, what do you do with eyewitness testimony in a court of law? You use it as data. It doesn't solve the issue. It doesn't seal the deal. There's massive research going on today in our legal systems about how eyewitness testimony functions. What I'm saying is, this is eyewitness testimony. Now, what are you going to do with the eyewitness testimony? What I'm saying, the point I'm making is that you don't have to go behind the Gospels to find the historical data. It's here. This is it. That's my first point. Not a huge point for a lot of you, but a deal breaker for some of you. Second point. Part of the reason this memory that we're reading here is so vivid is because it is an experience the author will never forget. This is the vivid recollection of a life-changing moment. And so, the actual words matter. I mean, exploiting Gil for another moment. What if Gil was telling you about something from his childhood with his grandmother, a conversation that utterly transformed his life. Can't you imagine the logic of him slipping into the actual words? Because they're words he will not play around with. Because in their language, spoken in her voice, in her tone, with her words, they are precious to him. So he owns them, and he treasures them, and he says them, and then he translates for you. That's what we're seeing here. It's remarkable. It's you telling a story at Thanksgiving to your friends or your family or your children about an event 50 years ago, and you slip all the way into a deep remembering. And the words and the event is so meaningful that you won't alter a single stitch of it. I think what we're seeing here is that John, who wrote this, is telling the moment he first met Jesus. And you don't alter the house you're living in. Look at verse 35. The next day, again, John was standing. I'm not talking about that John. That's John the baptizer. The next day, John the Baptist, John the Baptist, John the Baptist was standing with two of his disciples. Look down at verse 40. One of the two who heard John the Baptist speak and followed Jesus was Andrew. Never names the other one. 
Now, we might get to this in the weeks ahead, but the delayed identification of this shadowy figure that flits across the pages, the actual delay, there's a reason for it. This is sort of like watching a movie that at the end you discover something so that when you watch it again, you see things you never saw before. So uh, we have the privilege that we've read the whole book, right? So we're reading it again. This unnamed figure, John. John the baptizer was standing with two of his disciples, Andrew and John, we'll call him the beloved disciple. And he, John the baptizer, looked at Jesus, verse 37, as Jesus walked by and said, behold, the Lamb of God. In the Bible, when the word behold is used, it typically means, look at what I'm talking about. It's a command. Look. So here's John the baptizer, right? And he's talking with two of his followers. And Jesus is walking by and he says to them, behold. Right? That's the whole sermon last week. Pay close attention. Look deeply. The Lamb of God. Verse 37, the two disciples heard him say this. And they followed Jesus, and Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? Can you see John 50 years later? Remembering what it was like the moment Jesus saw him. He turned and looked at them. And said, and you know what? This is the first time Jesus speaks in the Gospel of John. John, the beloved disciple, who's the author of the Gospel, is saying, I remember that moment when I first met the Lord. And he's not just saying it, he's reliving it. He's describing it. We're going to see in a minute at the end of the gospel, he says, I'm an eyewitness. In the middle of the gospel, he talks about the importance of eyewitnesses who have been with Jesus from the beginning. In other words, he is the most credible of the eyewitnesses because of all the disciples, he was the first. Peter comes afterwards. Now, What we're dealing with here is not just a vivid recollection. It is the vivid recollection of a life-changing moment. Number three. So my first point, we're dealing with an actual memory, a vivid memory of an eyewitness. My second point is that it's it's the vivid recollection of a life-changing moment. My third point, and this is where I want to spend the rest of the sermon, is that we're not just dealing with a narration. We're dealing with an invitation. This is written not just as the description of a meaningful experience 50 years prior. It is written as an invitation to you and to me. John translates, not only because he's cherishing the memory, 
but also because he wants you to understand what those important words mean. Jump over, if you have your Bible, to the end of John's Gospel. Look at chapter 21. I'm sorry. I want to go to chapter 21. Chapter 20. Verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that the Christ, the Son of God, is Jesus. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. See, it's not only written as a narration. It's not only wit- written. Uh, did you hear it? Witten. That's, we've talked about that before. Not, not only is it written as an eyewitness account, but it's an eyewitness account with an agenda. He's inviting you to behold the Lamb. He's saying to you, look, look at Jesus. Look at the Christ. Now, this is something that is emphasized more in John's gospel than the other three gospels. This issue of individuals responding to Jesus. Think about this um, passage I quoted right after the pronunciation of the forgiveness of sins earlier. John 3.16, For God so loved the world. That's a universalistic collective, right? World, everybody. That singular, whosoever believed in him. John's gospel emphasizes the individual's response to Jesus more than any other gospel. So when he's telling this story about his own personal response, it's vivid, it's evocative. Now, let's look at how two particular individuals in this passage we've read, how their response to Jesus plays out. Go back to John chapter 1. Look at verse 35. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and he said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and he said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Now, what strikes me about this is how gentle Jesus is. Right? I mean, this is the exact right dialogue. It's not can. It's not stop. Jesus is walking by. Somebody's following him. So the obvious question is, what can I do for you? What are you you looking for? It's 
It's not stock, obnoxious, street corner evangelism. It's an actual conversation. He's actually saying a thing that actually makes sense. And they say, Rabbi, where are you staying? And now there's several important things about this. One, they were followers of a teacher in a culture where teachers had followers literally. They would walk around behind the teacher. That's what following is, literally, right? And they would stay at the teacher's house. So when they call him rabbi, they don't mean anything mystical by this. They don't mean anything about being God. They say, There's, this, this is a rabbi that we could learn from. So they say, in essence, in a culturally communicative way, can we come from, learn from you? Can we go to your house and learn from you? And he says, what? Come and see. Now, that's odd. They say, where are you staying? Come and see. This word staying. John's gospel, he's tricky. He uses these words at the beginning that they mean one thing, but by the time you get to the end, they've got a whole range of thick meaning. That word staying, John uses it 61 times in his gospel or his letters, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. This word staying, look, go back up to verse 33. This is the first time the word comes up. It's translated different in English here, but it's the same word. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend, and that's the same word, stay. You could also translate it dwell, menon in Greek, dwell. Comes up all over the place. So the first time we're introduced to this word that John is going to pack with lots and lots of theology is at the baptism of Jesus, and he says the Spirit of God dwells, stays, remains on Jesus. And then these two disciples, who might not have been there, they might not know anything about that, but we've already read that, and when you read the book a couple of times, they say, hey, where are you staying? And by the end of the book, where do we know Jesus stays? In the heart of the Father. Jesus' home is in the Father. By the end of the book, he dwells in love with the Father. In fact, go back to chapter 1 and look at verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God, and here's a literal translation, who is in the breast of the Father. That's what it says. Any of you who've read John's gospel know where head on breast comes up again in this gospel? John at the Last Supper, the beloved who does what? He lays his head on the breast of Jesus. Only two times the phrase is used in the book. Jesus' home where he dwells is in his love relationship with the Father. So these disciples say, where where are you staying? And Jesus is thinking, you have no idea where my home is, but you will. 
You come and stay with me. You come and see where I stay, where I dwell. And you, too, through me, can dwell with the Father. And John is saying to all of us, that is the invitation at the center of the gospel, of the Bible, of this whole thing we do. It is the creator who is not just an abstract force, but is the Father inviting you into the life of his love for the Son. Drawing you and I in to that love relationship so that we get to dwell not in a toxic home, not in a dysfunctional home, but we get to dwell at the center of the universe, which is love. It is the love of the Father for the Son and the love of the Son. Where does the Son dwell? In the bosom of the Father. And you get to the end of the gospel. And where does the beloved disciple dwell? In the bosom of the Son. That's the invitation. And so they go and dwell with him. And it's interesting, right? They call him rabbi before they look in verse, uh, at the end of verse 39. Where are you staying? Verse 38, where are you staying? And he says, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him. This is one of the most important words in the whole book. One of them then went and found his brother Andrew and said, not we have found a rabbi. Now he says, we've found the Messiah. I wonder what they talked about that night. Don't you? It's a secret. We don't know. I I can imagine some things. I could imagine that they were enveloped in an immense peace. Have you ever been around someone who dwells in the Father? Whose central identity is love? A love that is drawing on the source of all love. The center of all. The center that holds all of reality together is love. And they got to dwell around Jesus who that's where he lives. In the bosom of the Father, I can imagine they were enveloped in an immense peace, the very presence of Jesus. And that love that Jesus and the Father share, that the Son shares with the Father, it overflows out of Jesus, doesn't it? It overflows to these guys. Can you imagine the intense inner joy and freedom they might have experienced and how this was inspiring in them hope and creativity? I can imagine that they felt tingly, awe. It transformed them. They immediately... Go and tell their friends. 
This kind of stuff happens all over John's gospel. He has a significant emphasis on individuals and how they relate to Jesus. Over and over in John's gospel, we see that every individual must stand alone before Jesus and make his or her faith real. Each individual must make a personal response, a personal turning toward Jesus. Your response to Jesus has to be individual to be real. And this is what God is inviting all of us to, to dwell with him. That's our passage from Revelation 22 that we heard read earlier. The spirit and the bride say, come. That same word, which, by the way, gets picked up all through John's gospel. And John, who wrote the book of Revelation, ends his gospel, ends the book of Revelation with this this fecund, fruitful, life-giving invitation to all of us. He's showing us that even those who have tentatively accepted another person's witness about Jesus, we must meet Jesus for ourselves. Children, teenagers, if you're in this church, you're in a church that has graciously opened the heart of God to you. You have been baptized, but you must open your heart to Jesus. Faith must be individualized to be real. One, one other way this works out in the passage. This second episode, verses 43 to, to 51, this episode with good old Nathaniel. Pretty weird. I'm not going to take the time to explain the stuff that so easily doesn't make sense. Jaber Crow, great novel by Wendell Berry. Jaber Crow's a barber. He says, one thing I've learned cutting people's hair, there's always more that could be said than should be said. (laughs) And there's always more that should be said than you have time to say. So there's a lot that should be said here. But in the interest of time, I want to deal with how Nathaniel interacts with Jesus. And I want to show you and remind you that he's a skeptic. And that's okay. It's all right. The Bible never condemns intelligent skepticism. In fact, it's really important. It's it's, It's the necessary balance to preserve the distinction between genuine faith and foolish belief. But, and this is the important point, skepticism is only helpful as a starting point. It cannot have the last word. What happens to a marriage if skepticism has the last word. The skeptic must suspend skepticism 
if he's going to learn anything new. Because skepticism sustains, traps you in the prison of stuff you already know. And it closes you to anything new. Nathaniel is willing. Is anything good come out of Nazareth? He's been to that podunk corner of Israel. He's known that there's been a plethora of bogus messiahs rooted in that town. Even though he's got a lot of data to make him skeptical of the latest messianic figure to come from there, he suspends it. He suspends it. What about people who refuse the suspension of disbelief when they're watching movies? They're jerks. Have you ever sat by them in a movie? Oh, that can never happen in real life. Get out of here. I paid good money, a lot of money, to sit in this theater. And it's those people who actually miss the movie. The challenge of faith has to be accepted. Faith is not a second-class substitute for real knowledge. And we're tyrannized by a moment in our culture that believes faith is for wimps, afraid to face the hard data of empirical knowledge. And so... We've been raised in a moment, and our parents were raised in it, and our academies thrive in it, in this moment where faith is not the stuff of solidity. It's opinion. It's squishy. It's unsophisticated. But I want to say faith is not a second-class substitute for knowledge. It is the required prerequisite for all knowledge. Let let me just do a little um, game with you. The child who's eight and wants to learn how to play the violin. And Jesse Trainum, who normally sits here. Is everything okay, Zeke? Still together? Okay, all right. Jesse, she, she looks... Totally different than Zeke. Her beard, not nearly as long. Jessie, Jessie's sitting right there. She plays a violin. She taught my daughter violin. What if Spencer, taking violin from Jessie, what if she, her posture toward Jessie in that moment was resistance and skepticism? What if she said toward Jessie, no, I'm not going to hold the violin this way. Why do I have to do that? Why do I have to sit straight up? Why do I have to always practice how my hand is? Why do I have to hold it? What if her whole posture was questioning skeptic? Professors, have you ever had a student whose posture in class is that? Is that they refuse to even consider that you know? See, the requirement for every piece of knowledge is faith. Descartes said doubt leads to certainty. He was wrong. Doubt leads to pessimism. 
In other words, skepticism isn't a sustainable posture. What Spencer had to do in that moment was say, Jesse knows a lot more than I do, and the only way for me to learn any skill, the only way for you to learn math as a child, is to not, when you're seven, to ask your teacher to prove the existence of zero. It's just to absolutely, in faith, when the teacher says one plus zero equals one, is to buy it. And then one day, when you do your PhD in numerical analysis, then you can prove the existence of zero. One day when Spencer gets good enough at the violin, then she can change her posture. Faith seeking understanding. Faith is always in every domain the prerequisite of knowledge. You have to suspend and trust. That's what we see Nathan doing here. This common idea in our secular culture is that personal knowledge is inferior to that kind of knowledge that comes from the pure induction of the data of the sciences or extrapolation from the requirements of a logical system. Our culture is wrong on that. Now, where does this leave us? it depends on which us we're talking about. If you're a skeptic, I invite you to suspend your skepticism and be an intentional hypocrite. Pray like this stuff is true. Sing like it's true. Suspend disbelief. Try it on. Fake it. Live in it. That's the only way you can know if it's true. Christianity is self-authenticating. That's the only way. Secondly, if you've already turned to Jesus, if you've already come to know Him and dwell with and love Him and believe in Him, then let me remind you, He invites you every day into the secret place. There is a friend that sticks closer than a brother, and he is Jesus. I was having this massively difficult time at one point this week, and I'm sitting in my office, I have my candle lit, I'm reading the Bible, I'm praying, and I remember this passage. There's a friend that sticks closer than a brother. And I realized in that moment, you know what's good about some friends? They let you return to the same issue over and over. And a really good friend, when you're a broken record and you feel bad about it and you get all insecure and you say, I know I bring this up all the time, a really good friend says, well, that's what friendship is for. It is the place where you can be a broken record. In that moment, I realized it's the real me that Jesus loved, the frustrated me, the overwhelmed me. In that moment, the anxious me. The the me sometimes that wants to hurry up and get done with my devotion so I can do my real work. That's the me he loved. He's my friend. He invites you to his bosom to lay your head on his chest. And while this is a center, I've said it over and over over the years, that public corporate worship, that's the center, it has to overflow. 
It has to overflow into your own personal life where you are drawing near and in an intimate love affair with Christ. That's the invitation. Let's pray.